Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello all, I'm Vicki Vasilega, Director of the Clinical Special Scientist section here at ASHP, and I want to welcome you to today's episode. I'm particularly excited about this session as as a preview for one of our board certification offerings from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your clinical colleagues as they share the latest in clinical developments. Well, we start back with our case KB, who's at the beginning a 67-year-old male with a history of pulmonary embolism that was diagnosed two months prior on a factor 10 inhibitor. Once again, he was uh, in a motor vehicle accident and complicated by acute hemorrhagic shock. He has multiple fractures, a high-grade splenic laceration, and he receives ZHCO based on the dose and time of the last known ingestion of his factor 10 inhibitor. He undergoes surgical repair, and on post-operative day one, you discuss with the medical team a plan for when you should restart anticoagulation for his pulmonary embolism. What laboratory parameters would you consider in making this plan? Would you think about, A, conventional coagulation tests, such as a prothrombin time, an INR, or an activated partial thromboplastin time? Would you, B, look at just a complete blood count, such as a hemoglobin, hematocrit, or platelets? Would you, C, look at a calibrated anti-factor 10A level? Um, Or, D, look at some sort of viscoelastic hemostatic assay, such as thromboelastography? So once again, there's no right or wrong answer, and I'm sure everyone has an interesting approach to this, but I'm going to spend the next few slides trying to convince you that the best use or best available data would suggest that some sort of viscoelastic assay, such as TEG, might be useful in this clinical setting. In order to do that, we have to rule out why or the other conventional assays might not be useful. So as a reminder, conventional assays lack the sensitivity to quantify levels of apixaban and rivaroxaban so that a normal PT or APTT do not necessarily preclude the presence of a clinically significant drug level for apixaban or rivaroxaban. And we know this based on early clinical data. There's a comparable publication for rivaroxaban, but this is just the data for apixaban. And then we can see that patients treated with apixaban that were then treated with ZHCO, they had no baseline elevation in their PT or APTT and subsequently had no change in this value following sub, following CHCO administration. So once again, this suggests that once the PTT and PT would not be accurate markers for use in this setting. So what about a calibrated factor 10 assay? Well, generally speaking, these provide the most reliable correlation with the degree of anticoagulation. So in abs- typically we think about a calibrated assay for a pixaban or rivaroxaban. But in the absence of an assay calibrated for one of these specific agents, you can qualitatively use one for a low molecular weight heparin. The caveat to this occurs once we introduce ZHCO. So in these settings, ZHCO often leads to an overestimate of the anticoagulant activity. And this occurs secondary to some of the assay procedures that utilize a high level of dilution. To explain this, I'm going to take you back to high school chemistry, where we consider two reactants, A plus B plus one product, AB. Typically, this this reaction exists in the equilibrium, where the forward reaction equals that of the reverse reaction, and that by increasing one of the concentrations either of the products or reactants, we oftentimes shift the reaction in the opposite direction to compensate. The same thing occurs with factor 10 assays. 
So when taking human serum and adding some sort of inactivated color indicator with bovine factor 10, we get a reaction between bovine factor 10 and the chromophore to produce color. In standard assays, the amount of volume of factor 10 added to human serum is often 44 times more than that human serum, which greatly increases the color production in this particular assay. Now, in this setting, once we add a pixaban or rivaroxaban, this doesn't necessarily influence the results of the assay other than what's calibrated by the assay, which is why the calibration is such a critical point. When we introduce ZHCO, things start to go a little differently. So remember that ZHCO forms a reversible complex with a pixaban and rivaroxaban, so that it actually decreases the amount of unbound concentration of unbound inhibitor found in patient serum. But overall, the net effect is an increase in the total amount of inhibitor present in the bloodstream. So once we test patient serums that have been treated with ZHCO and dilute these, at, dilute these out 44 times, we actually see a dissociation between the ZHCO complex and the factor 10 inhibitor. So that the factor 10 inhibitor, such as a pixaban or rivaroxaban, is more free to inhibit bovine factor 10 and thus produces a color change that's associated with a higher level of anti-10A activity. This is graphically a way that we can represent this. So we take any patient treated with some sort of factor 10 inhibitor and we check a baseline factor 10 level, anti-factor 10 level, we see that following treatment with the ZHCO, if we were to utilize one of these commercial assays that utilize a high dilution method, we will often get an overestimate of the anti-factor 10 activity. It isn't until we utilize a modified assay that minimizes this dilution that we start to get a time curve that more, looks more appropriately like a patient treated with ZHCO according to its pharmacokinetic profile. So I would encourage you to think about checking with your lab to see which type of assay that we, you would use. In particular, in the Anexa 4 study, the reason why we didn't see this necessarily is because the sponsor had a homegrown assay that utilized a modified approach, minimizing the number of dilutions that were present. If your institution does not use one of these assays, I think the solution therein lies in utilizing assays with a whole blood approach, of which we have a few options. The first being the ACT or activated clotting time. We know from looking at the Anexa A and Anexa R studies that any elevation in a pretreatment ACT typically normalizes following ZHCO administration. Two um, alternatives to ACT would be uh, some sort of viscoelastic assay such as TEG or ROTEM. Now, these are very similar assays that utilize different terminology that illustrate similar things. For thromboelastography or TEG, the reaction time often shows the greatest correlation in a pixaban or rivaroxaban use. And of course, the reference ranges of these are assay specific. If your institution uses, utilizes ROTEM, specifically a low tissue factor ROTEM approach may increase in response to clinically relevant concentrations of a pixaban or rivaroxaban. Utilizing tests that seek to assess specifically the intrinsic and extrinsic pathway don't produce any greater predictive ability based on the clotting time. And so I would encourage you not to use such assays such as the NTIM clotting time or the XTEN clotting time. With that, I'm gonna to transition to my colleague, Dr. Sylvester.
Thank you very much, Brian, for that amazing review of the data related to IndexNet Alpha or ZHZO. So now that we've re reviewed that data, we're going to move on and consider what happens if IndexNet Alpha is not on your formulary for life-threatening bleeding associated with either apixaban or rivaroxaban. Maybe you're curious about those other cool clot drugs that we call PCCs. So why are we even talking about prothrombin complex concentrates for life-threatening bleeding when we have a specific reversal agent available? Well, PCCs have been used in practice in the United States and across the world and are still the standard of care at many institutions. Prior to the FDA approval um, of ZHZO, PCCs were the only option available, whether it be activated PCCs or four-factor PCCs. That leads us to the question, if they're not a specific reversal agent, how do they work? Unfortunately, because PCCs haven't been evaluated by the FDA for this indication, we don't exactly know the mechanism for reversal. However, there's many theories out there. One is that you're giving an uh, overload of factor 10 in order to overcome the inhibition by 10A inhibitors. Some others suggest, especially with activated PCCs, that you're bypassing the factor 10 inhibition by giving factor 7 and factor 2. But we don't, we don't have a firm conclusion on that one. The next question we come to is what is the efficacy of PCCs in the real world population? And Brian gave us an overview of some of the um, final outcomes, both safety and efficacy. But it's important that we understand that some of these data, especially the early data, were based in either animal models or in vitro or healthy volunteers. We are lucky now that we do have some larger studies looking at prospective cohorts of about 100 to up to 400 patients. Um, but the studies are very different. They're different in what they looked at, what their definition of hemostatic efficacy was, what the um, proportion of patients who had intracranial hemorrhage versus extracranial bleeds. Um, and also when we're thinking about thrombotic events, we want to know when was anticoagulation restarted. But in general, hemostatic efficacy in the real world populations has ranged somewhere between 65 and 85 percent. And we'll go a little bit more into that data. What are the risks associated with four PCCs? Brian laid that out for you, but the real risk we're thinking about here is thrombotic events. And for PCCs, this has been reported somewhere between zero and 10%. Again, you wanna delve into that data and see whether these patients were restarted and what their underlying thromboembolic risk was. And then finally, what is the cost of PCCs? Um, we know that the cost of IndexNet Alpha is extremely high, somewhere between 25,000 and 50,000 per dose. And the cost of PCCs is more in the range of 2,500 to 10,000 per dose, depending on if you're using a fixed dose or a weight-based dose and whether you have a small person or a larger person. So here's a closer look at some of the observational prospective studies with four-factor PCC for DOAC-associated major bleeding. The first um, large stud prospective study that we had was published by Majid et al. in 2017 and looked at 84 patients. All three of these studies looked at four-factor PCC. Um, we, they did not look at activated PCC in these cases, but they had different doses. So for the Majid trial, um, the median dose was 2,000 units of four-factor PCC, which approximated to 25 units per kilo. You could see the age was similar across all three of these studies, as well as the overall mix of apixaban and rivaroxaban. The primary outcome um, was the ISTH definition of hemostatic efficacy in the Majid and the Bavalia trials. And then in Schulman, they actually used um, good, moderate, or poor hemostasis by the Sirode criteria. So for the Majid trial, effective hemostasis was seen in about 70% of the population, and they had a 4% thromboembolic rate and a 32% 30-day mortality. And of note, 
uh, three patients did need a second dose of 4-PCC out of the 84, so relatively low percent. In the Shulman et al. trial in 2018, there were 66 patients. They did use a fixed dose 4-PCC of 2,000 units, and two patients re required a second dose. And by the Sirode definition, they looked at good hemostasis at 65% and moderate at 20%. They also did a secondary analysis um, using the ISTH criteria and found 68% to have effective hemostasis, very similar to what we saw in Majid. And then finally, Bavalia was just published this year. They had 51 patients who had um, a DOAC-associated life-threatening bleed that was treated with a PCC. You can see here that the denominator in some of these statistics are different because there was an overall bleeding cohort on uh, DOACs of 76, but only 51 were treated with the 4-PCC. And they also saw hemostatic efficacy um, by ISTH criteria at 70%, a 2% thromboembolic rate, and 18% mortality rate. So one of the largest prospective studies that's come out so far is the FIX-ICH trial, and this is actually a pre-planned analysis of PCCs for 10A inhibitors, specifically in intracranial hemorrhages, that was put out by the Neurocritical Care Society Pharmacist Group, and this is part one of their study. Eventually, they're also looking at um, the index and alpha data, and they'll compare them, so we'll have a nice large cohort, but so far they've published their PCC data. This was um, a retrospective cohort of 26 different um, institutions that pooled their data. You can see on these slides where the primary intracranial site was, but about 44% were subdural, 40% were intracerebral, and about a quarter of the patients actually had multiple intracranial sites affected. About a 50-50 split between apixaban and rivaroxaban. Three quarters of the patients were treated with four-factor PCC and a quarter with activated PCC. And then over to the right, you can see the primary endpoint, and they actually used their own definition of hemostatic efficacy based on um, the bleed growth after indexnet uh, PCCs were given. Overall, their hemostatic efficacy rate was 81.8%, and they had thromboembolic rates um, of 3.8%, which was 15 VTE events and 10 arterial events within 30 days. So we're seeing pretty consistent data overall with the PCCs. There was a meta-analysis that included um, data from many of these trials. So they included any of the data that was published for four PCCs prior to 2018 that had the major outcomes they were looking for of major bleeding management, mortality, and thromboembolism. They were able to include 10 case series with a total of 340 adults who were taking an oral 10A inhibitor. And you can see the results over here in the right. So they broke up the pooled results for effective bleeding based on what definition was used. So you can see 150 50 patients were included in the ISTH definition of effective hemostasis, which was 69%. Of note, these were the Majid and the Shulman trials that we've already talked about. And then another 190 patients were included in the non-ISTH definition of effective hemostasis, and that was 77%. All-cause mortality, similar to what we've seen in previous studies of 16%, with a thromboembolic rate of 4%. What I thought was most interesting about this meta-analysis and certainly gives us something to think about are the author's conclusions. And so their conclusion to this meta-analysis was it's actually unclear if PCC in combination with stopping the 10A inhibitor is any more effective at achieving hemostasis than supportive care alone as well as stopping the 10A inhibitor. As we know, we don't have any randomized control trials and we also don't have any placebo control trials. So we don't know what the effect of 4-PCC is over standard, over uh, supportive care alone. 
So looking at the data side by side from this meta-analysis in the Annexa 4 trial, looking at Indexit, again, we're comparing apples to oranges here, but just so that you have both pieces of data on the same screen. The effective um, bleeding management by ISTH was 82% and with IndexNet Alpha and 69% in the meta-analysis of four-factor PCC. All-cause mortality was similar at 14% with IndexNet Alpha and 16% for four PCCs, and a thromboembolic rate of 10% with IndexNet Alpha and 4% for four PCCs. So that's the clinical data that we have available for us for four PCCs for life-threatening bleeding, but let's go back to these surrogate markers that Brian has already talked about. Important to remember that these have not been established um, to be correlating with clinical efficacy and outcomes, but let's look at the data that we have. So here you'll see on the left is the ETP um, for associated with rivaroxaban. On the right is with apixaban. This data was presented at ISTH 2019 and shows the effect of four-factor PCC 50 units per kilo on ETP in the presence of varying concentrations of either rivaroxaban on the left or apixaban on the right. For reference and to orient you to these graphs, the dotted horizontal line is the reference level for ETP in the patients without anticoagulation. And the graph shows that at rivaroxaban or apixaban levels of an approximately 75 nanograms per ml, the addition of 50 units per kilo of four-factor PCC is able to restore thrombin generation. However, when the concentration of rivaroxaban, for example, is above that 75 nanograms per ml, the thrombin generation does not go above the baseline threshold. It's also for reference for you in the Annexa 4 trial, at least three quarters of the patients in both Annexa R and Annexa A actually had anti-10A levels greater than 75 nanograms per ml. So if we were to be able to extrapolate this data, you would be able to say that 75% of patients would not have had restoration of thrombin generation using four-factor PCCs. Okay, looking at a little bit more coagulation parameters and surrogate markers, I'll take you back to the Bavalia study, which we looked at when we were comparing the observational cohorts of four PCC. And just as a reminder, there were 51 patients in the study who were treated with four-factor PCC, approximately 50 units per kilo, and the hemostatic efficacy rate in this group was 70%. So these investigators also had um, coagulation parameters for 19 of these patients. And they were able to look at what the surrogate markers were. And they looked at both um, thrombin generation using TEG and fibrin clot lysis time. So of all these patients, you can see here, if you first look at the lag time, you can see, oh, I should also orange you, T0 was baseline, T1 was 15 to 30 minutes after four PCC administration, and T2 was four to eight hours after. So you can see that there was the lag time significantly decreased from baseline down to T1 and T2. For ETP, thrombin generation was restored. The blue bars here are our reference ranges for our baseline non-anticoagulated patients. ETP was restored and maintained throughout the eight hours. And then if you come over to the clot lysis time on the far right, you can see that the lysis time was ex uh, expanded from T0 to T2, which really tells us we're looking at more stable clots after the administration for PCC. So where does this leave us with four PCCs place in therapy and what outstanding questions do we have? So we know that we have a lot of data supporting the effect of PCC on coagulation parameters in in vitro animal studies and healthy volunteers, but how is this different in the bleeding patients? We don't have any randomized control trials, but we certainly have a lot of prospective cohorts at this time with larger numbers than we had seen in the past. 
Which coagulation parameters best reflect hemostasis at the bleeding site? Do coagulation parameters correlate with clinical outcomes in what populations? And is this different for intracranial and extracranial bleeds? What's the effect of not giving any reversal agent and just using supportive care and stopping the 10A inhibitor? And do we have to take into account timing of administration based on the status of the bleed, like size, location of the bleed, and predetermining if the bleed is salvageable? So looking at what's going on today, and I say that kind of with air quotes here because this survey was actually completed um, between January 30th, 2019 and March 2nd, 2019. So it's important to note here that Indexnet Alpha was actually approved by the FDA in May of 2018, and that was the Gen 1 product, which was not widely available for distribution. Wide distribution happened somewhere around December uh, 2018. So we're looking at pretty close to after institutions would have had access to Indexinet Alpha. But you can see on the far left, the location of the teaching of the the hospitals. Most of them were in the United States and 64% of these were teaching hospitals. When we look at which reversal agent was used most often, about three quarters of the uh, respondents used four-factor PCCs, another 13% used Indexinet Alpha, and then a smaller 10% used activated PCC. What I thought was most interesting about this survey, however, was looking at the PCC regimens on the far right. You can see that the majority of about 57% used 50 units per kilo, but then there was a lot of variability after that. So there was doses between 25 and 50 units per kilo, fixed 25 units per kilo, fixed dose of 2,000. And then in this other category, there's actually 11 different regimens that use um, different ideas like start low and then give more if needed um, and all sorts of other examples here. But there's a lot of variability in practice, at least in by March 2019. And then we're going to go back to the guidelines, which I know Brian already went over, but I just wanted to point out a couple things that I thought was interesting when we're thinking about this. For the 2020 ACC expert consensus decision pathways, and I should note that all four of these guidelines are pretty much um, in agreement with each other that first line is IndexNet Alpha, although the strength of the language in each of these is a little bit different. But for the expert consensus decision pathway, there's some, uh, after the asterisk of administer IndexNet Alpha, it's interesting that they suggest that maybe consider what the anti-10A level is, and if it's less than 75 nanograms per ml, which we saw um, in some of the Indexa 4 data, then maybe we don't need to reverse with Indexnet Alpha. And then if you move over to the far right and we look at the American College of Emergency Physicians 2019, again, they're recommending Indexnet Alpha first line, but they do put a timestamp on here if less than 18 hours from the last time of the DOAC. And then I think they provide some interesting um, suggestions at the bottom of clinical scenarios where either the bleed is so small that you may not need a reversal agent and supportive measures alone might be okay, or the bleed is so catastrophic that probably giving any sort of reversal agent is not going to be valuable. And so I think these are really helpful when you're considering making your um, individual guidelines at your institution. Thank you for joining us and listening to the great clinical content from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Are you a board-certified pharmacist looking for recertification credits? Be sure to check out ASHP's recertification offerings online at store.ashp.org. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review.
Join us next time on ASHP Official.